Today's episode of Keeping It 1600 is brought to you by Children's International. Poverty is a vicious cycle, but it can be broken. When you give to Children's International, you're giving children the health, education, empowerment, and employment they need to break free for life. At Children's International, 84% of every dollar goes toward helping children. That's how you know you're not just making a donation, you're making an impact. This giving season, give something that counts. Donate today at children.org slash give. That's children.org slash give. Welcome to Keeping It 1600. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On the pod today, we have Chuck Todd, NBC's political director, host of Meet the Press, and host of the uh, Meet the Press podcast, 1947. Uh, we'll be doing a crossover pod with Chuck. So uh, this will be on his his podcast, and uh, and we'll be on his. So exciting so stuff! Exci- I know we're just, we're just we're just making moves left and right. <laughs> um, but first, uh, first we got some news. Actually, first, Dan, do you, do you want to say something about your attack on Carl's Jr.? <laughs> yes, uh, I have said a lot PSA. of things on this pod. Many of them wrong. Some of them offensive. But nothing has elicited the reaction that my attack on Carl's Jr. did. And maybe <laughs> I put partisan blinders on because. I care about the working men and women of America, and I don't think that Carl Sr., or whatever the dude's name, who's going to be Secretary of Labor is, uh, you know, should, Putsker, should be Andy Putzker, I think. Putzker, yeah. Uh, but boy, just Twitter, my friends, just very upset about the Western bacon cheeseburger, or whatever it is, that people really, really like, and love it, too. Just love like, it. Love, just, a, just a brutal attack. And then Love you it's just a threw fast food. Love it's a fast food connoisseur. He goes down the street to Norm's Diner, like, you know, in the morning and eats all kinds of horrible things. So I, that doesn't surprise me. All <laughs> right. So Trump, uh, Trump was tweeting this morning. Uh, we'll start with the we'll start with the silly and move on to the serious. Um, yes. Has anyone looked at the really poor numbers of Vanity Fair magazine? Way down. Big trouble. Dead. Graydon Carter. No talent. Will be out. <laughs> So I saw this. You you put this in the outline, Dan, and I woke up and I'm like, what? What is he talking about? What is Trump talking about? <laughs> it turns out that there was um, there was a review in Vanity Fair of the Trump Grill by Tina <laughs> Wen, um, in which she called it a cheap version a cheap version of rich. Which I thought was great. <laughs> That's a great descriptor. Uh, the other the other line I liked from it was the bathrooms transport diners to the experience of desperately searching for toilet paper at a Venezuelan grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I, I don't know why there's an attack on Venezuela in there, but <laughs> I, I thought it was some great writing. Um, yeah, it was very good. So he's he was upset about that. Yeah. Well, I guess he and Graydon Carter have a long-running feud because I believe Graydon Carter was the first person to raise the smallness of Donald Trump's hands. Oh, good for Graydon. And so they so they've run it. They've they've had a running feud here, and so he was very upset about that. Um, the funny part is Donald Trump also used to have a magazine and it failed so it's I mean, like he, he is he is no concern for the glass house in which he lives ever which i guess maybe is an asset since he's going to be president of the united states look everyone knows when you become president you continue the personal feuds you've had over your life with people and you use your platform to, to attack those people that's just that's what you do as president right yes. i mean God. is there any surprise that the trump girl would suck <laughs> like, no just, i wouldn't i mean forget pre-trump 
like invading our lives like this, I would never go to a Trump restaurant. I would have never even thought about it because I would have just said no. like Trump. Oh, that's like super gaudy, you know, celebrity apprentice guy. I mean, I guess someone's out there is yeah. being like, that's why you lost. But whatever. Yeah, <laughs> it's like I mean, it's like I go into Guy Fieri's restaurant. I think like it wouldn't <laughs> even occur to me as a good idea. Oh, you're, you're probably going to get a bunch of attacks on that. Um, do people do people not like Guy Fieri either? I, I think not. I don't know. Oh, I've heard some. Knows? Yeah, he's prob- probably going to be secretary of something. Shortly. Not get into it. We're, we're Jose Andres people on this podcast. Um, That's right. Uh, so then he tweeted, then Trump tweeted, the media tries so hard to make my moves to the White House as it pertains to my business so complex when actually it isn't. No, it isn't. Uh, in fact, the only way you can avoid being in violation of the Constitution from day one is to sell your stake in your businesses or place them in a blind trust, and Trump decides has decided to do neither. So it isn't well, it that is, complicated. You're in violation of the Constitution, buddy. <laughs> that is true. It is not It is not complicated either way. It is not complicated if you follow the law. If you decide to completely disregard the law, that's also a simple solution. Right. Like, I don't, I mean... I don't know. What, I don't know where the conflict of interest thing goes because uh, we're all sort of screaming it from the rooftops. But uh, it, Paul Ryan does not seem to care that the president of the United States is uh, probably going to be in violation of the Constitution and has all these conflicts. Neither does Jason Chaffetz, who runs the uh, investigation, would run the investigation here, the Oversight Committee. He was all ready to investigate Hillary Clinton for like three years, and suddenly Donald Trump has a serious conflict of interest and in that he has a business empire all over the world that he is not divesting uh, out of. So. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't know what to say here. Yeah, it's. it's I mean, try, Donald Trump will is going to violate like ten laws on the day he is sworn in. I mean, it's just it's a fact. Unless unless he sells his businesses, he's going to be in violation of his GSA lease. He's just waiting right. until he's in charge of the GSA. I assume to ensure that the GSA does not kick him off his lease. Can we tell people what he, the GSA is? The General Services Administration, who so they is own a bunch of buildings. Property. Yeah. Yes. And they leased the old post office in D.C. to Donald Trump to turn it into a hotel that will now become the place where every foreign diplomat stays in order to uh, get, curry favor with Donald Trump. Which, and and unlike, when the foreign dignitaries stay there and pay for the hotel, the money goes to the Trump organization, which Trump is a part of, which means that foreign heads of foreign governments are paying money to the president of the United States, which is not allowed in the Constitution. Spelled out. <laughs> Not yes. fake. It's the con- It's not fake news. It's the Constitution. <laughs> can, you, can you prove that's in the Constitution? Can right. you prove yes. that? If we're gonna, the next, the next thing's gonna be like, oh, your copy of the Constitution is fake news. It's not real. No, no, it's in the Constitution. So dis- it, at least just admit it. Like you can tell us you don't give a shit, but at least admit <laughs> that he's being, he's going to be in violation of the Constitution. That is the opinion of not just Democratic lawyers but Republican lawyers. George W. Bush's ethics lawyer has this opinion as well, a whole, along with a whole bunch of others so and then there are nepotism laws to prevent politicians from hiring their family members oh yeah and donald trump is hiring all of his family members except for the ones who are running the business who are also advising him it's like fucking it's like the the white house sopranos here well i think (laughs) if 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 our politics was an hbo drama then this will end with comey bringing down trump for violating laws Oh, yeah. And then we will all for and because as the way this can only end for Democrats is to be forced 
to then cheer Comey and have all our previous tweets thrown back S- in our face. Someone said this the other day, like Comey should step down, Comey should resign. Like I, I have been very no. angry with I've been very angry with Jim Comey, uh, and I do think that the letter, you know, was a big reason uh, she lost the undecided voters towards the end. But uh, no, I think we should keep him there because he's yes. he, he's, yes. he's like you know he's he's shown that he will. You know, he, we we need him there. <laughs> Is who can you imagine who? Trump would appoint to be head of the FBI would it be exactly. like that dude Bo Deedle from Fox like probably I mean, or could, Giuliani I mean these this is real it's not like yeah. if you think the next FBI director after Comey under Trump is going to be any better whatsoever or, or just or not just like the scariest person you could ever imagine then yeah yes because if there's one lesson that you could take away from that election is at least Trump would take away is you you definitely want a buddy in the FBI because they can fuck you and so I'm pretty sure he's not finding some independent minded prosecutor to take you know it's not going to be you know some independent amount of prosecutor to take that role it would be one of his cronies yeah so and a crony who's probably on TV since all of his jobs he seemed to be going to TV pundits yeah, I mean, the, the interesting dynamic is going to be between Comey and Jeff Sessions, who will be not really technically his boss, but the FBI is, you know, within the Justice Department. And uh, I'm sure they're going to have some clashes of opinion. Yeah, well, you know, that, you know, in the Clinton years during all the Clinton investigations, when Janet Reno was the attorney general, also not super close to the Clintons, um, Louis Free was the FBI director. And oh, there yeah. was a lot, a lot of tension there. And so there, there was precedent for this. Um, okay, the last tweet was, if Russia or some other entity was hacking, why did the White House wait so long to act? Why did they only complain after Hillary lost? Okay, so here's the Wall Street Journal headline from July 27th, 2016. Obama says experts tie Russia to DNC hacking. Subhead, president says motives unknown, but suggests Russia would stand to benefit from a Trump presidential victory. <laughs> that was July, okay? In October, October 8th, the intelligence agencies came out and said, by the way, Russia's hacking into our election also. So, I mean, false. False, Donald Trump. False. <laughs> huh. It's, it's, it, everyone forgets uh, that this was a big like the the sort of perception among the world particularly people who are mad at obama for not doing more is as if like we didn't know the russians had hacked before this i mean i saw i was watching cbs morning news this morning and they did a I mean, this is horribly painful, so I don't recommend anyone watch it, but they did their like year in review, so they did all this stuff in the campaign. And there was that whole exchange in the third debate, I think, where yeah. Hillary Cl- about that Russian hacking and Hillary Clinton saying that he was, uh, that Trump was Putin's puppet, and then and Trump's like, you're a puppet, right? So and she like, said, she goes, 17 intelligence agencies have come to the conclusion that, and then she went on. I find that deeply disturbing, Secretary and Clinton. I think it's She time. has no so idea whether it's Russia, China, it, or anybody else. I am not quoting myself. No I am quoting Hillary, you 17, have no idea. 17 intelligence, do you doubt 17 our, our military has and no civilian idea. agencies? Well, yeah, he'd I doubt rather it. believe I doubt Vladimir Putin than the military and civilian intelligence professionals. Um, but like that's you know that that ha- it, we we talked about this many many times. But this is the problem: is like our collective memory is uh, is 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 not not doing so great these days. <laughs> it's yeah, short. I, I, it's short. I, I blame Twitter for that. It's true. No, I mean it, yeah. like I think that the fair criticism of 
uh, the criticism you can make about Obama is he did not do enough publicly, and he d- he was not public in what his response and what our response was going to be to Russia, right? So you can argue over that whether he did enough publicly or not. But he certainly, I mean, the the administration and the government did warn us that Russians were hacking into our election, and it was fairly obvious who they were trying to prop up here. Yeah, yeah. This is I think this is sort of a dumb. This is a dumb argument. Where it is people casting about for blame in a horrible loss. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I want to know personally, like, what are we going to do with the Russians? And um, I saw that Loretta Lynch, the attorney general today, said, you know, it's we're going to try to make as much public as possible. But, you know, it's very possible that this retaliation will have to be private just because of the methods and everything else we use. I mean, some of this stuff has got to be like covert. So that's not satisfying to the public, but it might be how the how the retaliation has to go. It is worth noting, just to put all my biases on the table here, that I personally have been sanctioned by Putin before, and I am still banned, as far I as I know, from traveling, from traveling to Russia. Yeah, you and Ben Rhodes, right? Yeah, in part we, we I should, in part because I went on Meet the Press uh, to talk about this with our guest Chuck Todd the weekend before the weekend before they retaliated us, and the only reason anyone could think of as to why I was on the list with people like Ben Rhodes, the people who write the sanctions in the Treasury Department, was I was on Meet the Press and said bad things about Putin. So, and then when they. I assume I'm still sanctioned, but I'm not really going to test the waters. I don't want to end up in that Snowden hotel in the airport forever. <laughs> but it is they when they re-upped them last year, I guess, after I left the White House, I was still on the list. So Yeah. Also, I'm not yeah. emailing you anymore. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> oh, this is a public right. service announcement that someone on Twitter suggested we do, and I think it's good, which is everyone turn on two-step verification on your emails. You just yes. you should. What, yes. and, and and I'm not going to go through the whole. Love it would if he was here because he he likes this kind of stuff. He he got he turned me on to two step verification a couple <laughs> of years ago, but um, it's Google it and and then turn on two step verification to your email. That's that's the world we're in. Uh, it's extra security. Uh, hey, okay. can I Robert, before we move? Can I also just because I want to turn this pot into an immediate response? To everything you guys say on earlier in the week. Yeah, I like but that. Can I defend the Clinton IT guy? Oh, yeah. I feel bad yeah. about that, too. It was like a sort of a funny joke, and we should not. Yeah, yeah but go yeah. ahead. Yeah. Do it. He obviously had a typo, but he did send the correct link about where to click on to change your password. So it That's really right. isn't his fault Trump is president. Like It's not his fault Trump is president <laughs> yeah. at all. And I remember that being very confusing to people when those emails came out of WikiLeaks being like, oh, my God, Clinton IT guy is an idiot because he said it was a legitimate email. Everyone knows this is legitimate. Then they're like, but why did he send the right link? So... This is not really his fault. Even if, no matter what two letters he left off, if you if that link had been clicked on, then th- at least that portion of the emails would not have gotten out. The person whose fault it is is Vladimir Putin, who NBC reported today is directly responsible for the hack. Uh, it was because there was a lot of. Uh, people didn't know at what level of the Russian government this was directed from. It turns out it was right from Putin himself. At least that's what reports say. Um, yeah, the- Go ahead. Yeah, they said he was actually directing like the release of the info, which was pretty awesome. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. He's like dark arts political oppo operative. Can I ask? Because a lot of people have been asking us this: how how do we respond to this? Like, what can people do? Right? Like, the, I mean, I know this is uh, sort of in the hands of the government, and then you know, with the Trump administration, it's going to be uh, pretty hard to hope for any kind of real response to Russia here. But like, where are the pressure points for the public to? Uh, make sure that something is done about the fact that our election was hacked by a foreign adversary. 
boy, that's a that's a question we should ask someone like Ben Rhodes. But I, look, I, <laughs> I think, mean, there's investigations, there's sanctions, there's the Tillerson nomination. We've got you know Vladimir Putin's friend that's coming up for Secretary of State. You know, like it seems like there's a couple options here. But I think absent the um, the public putting pressure on politicians, and particularly Republican politicians, we are going to end up with a pro-Putin foreign policy. Yeah. And it's only going to be by virtue of people like our friend Lowell Marco Rubio, McCain, Graham, the people who have sort of carried the anti-Putin banner aggressively in the Republican Party yep. to put real pressure on Trump via his nominations. The Tillerson one is interesting. You know, it's, I've been really wrestling with the Tillerson one because general, like, I think I don't, I'm not a huge fan of ExxonMobil generally. So like that, like that's, I don't think that's great, but like, do you have Tillerson himself was pro TPP and pro Paris climate change agreement and seems to believe climate change is real, mm. um, which is not a, not a, it's a big deal you know, for a Trump administration member and the head of ExxonMobil. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like that would be good. Like he seems to be a rational, real human. I don't think you can be the head of one of the largest companies in the world and not be a rational human being capable of listening to different points of view. But the Putin thing is worrisome, you know. And so, it's it's like, I, do you do you want a pro climate change, pro Putin <laughs> Secretary of State, or do you want a anti Putin? anti-climate change secretary because it feels like that we're going to end up with something i'm nervous about the taking down of tillerson even because I, who is it going to be bolton who follow who well that's what i the top? yeah i mean the, the thing with trump nominees is you know that like behind the one that you defeat is always one that's probably worse right and so yeah. like i think it's a contest of you know i mean they're 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 bad for different reasons or they're problematic for different reasons but john bolton is a pretty scary prospect at, uh, as secretary of state too since he uh had quite a hand in manipulating intelligence around the Iraq war um, and has done a number of other crazy things. Um, so not great. Not great. Day. <laughs> not great. Um, let's talk about the tech meeting, uh, Trump and the tech CEOs, since since you're uh, you're a member, you're a member of the Silicon Valley elite now. <laughs> yeah. well, I, well, I live I live in the Bay Area. Let's, I'm not sure I made it. I've made elite status yet. I know. Um, um, should, should, should they have gone? These tech. Yes. Meetings? Yes. Yeah. Uh, you have to. It's not. It's the right, I, some people have asked me about this, and the equivalent I can think of is the Wall Street CEOs who would come meet with President Obama in 2009, 2010, when we were trying to do Dodd-Frank. Like, you can either have a voice or not have a voice, and I think you have an obligation. If the president calls a meeting, you, people should generally go to the meeting. Second, these are major companies who have a lot of business before the federal government and have shareholders and employees, and they... You know, I don't think they had a choice. I'm sure it wasn't pleasant by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think those Wall Street guys particularly enjoyed those meetings they did with Obama either. Um, but I think you have to go to the meeting. I don't know. You should be. A, you should make your points in the meeting and use your forum to carry. I think also to. You know, I don't. I just don't know what happened in the meeting. But having been in some meetings with President Obama, people. Well, they, we will also, you know, use the opportunity to raise your issues. I mean, either your business, the issue is very specific to your business around regulation or policy, but also, you know, some bigger concerns about, you know, approach to the presidency or whatever else. Yeah. Look, my opinion on this is, yes, they should have gone to the meeting, but I think if you go to the meeting, it means that you have an even greater obligation to, to speak out about where you disagree, because now you've talked to them. And... 
What I don't think these companies can do, or any company, is um, if they believe and have said during the campaign that Trump was racist, sexist, offensive, derogatory, antithetical to a lot of the um, beliefs and ideals that these tech companies purport to have, then you can't go into a meeting with him, have this whole meeting, come out, never issue a statement where you say, you know, I'm still upset with how he ran, you know, I thought a lot of things he did during the campaign were racist, sexist, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'm hoping to influence him going forward, right? Like, whatever the statement is, I do think you need to be on the record as saying something. And look, when, when the administration starts, um, you know, unless Trump has fooled us all and is some wonderful president we all love, um, <laughs> then it, the, the, as he starts making decisions and taking actions, like those, everyone who is in that room has a very serious obligation to speak out if they disagree. I, I think that's right. I think we, it's also important for us to separate some of these people as individuals acting in their personal capacity supporting Hillary Clinton and yeah. the CEOs of said companies representing the shareholders and customers, which may look a little bit more like America than the the people that they live with out here in Silicon Valley. Right. And it is, I just, I think that there may, like, I guess the example I would use is that these companies were not shy when they were concerned about how the NSA acted under President Obama. Yes. Right, even though they liked, you know, personal supporters of President Obama, many of them donated to him or raised money to him or grew to be friends with him over the course of, you know, his eight years in the White House. But when there, when the int- when something happened that they disagreed with, they spoke out. And the, there is no reason to believe that these companies will not do that in a similar situation. Many of them, for I think moral reasons, but also business reasons, are big supporters of immigration reform. That's and so a lot of a lot it, of their companies, like not the voice of the CEOs, but the voice of the company, the brand of the company, is embracing diversity, embracing you know a global world where we all sort of get along and learn from each other. Like that's that's sort of embedded in the mission of a lot of these tech companies more so than other right. companies. Right, and they advocated. Um, many of them advocated for immigration reform over the last several years, and I suspect they will continue to do that, um, you know, going forward. So we, I think we have to see, but I think it, it is an un, it was I think it's unfair criticism of them to say they didn't support Donald Trump, therefore they should not go meet with him because right. that was, that somehow normalizes him. I don't think that I don't think it's the right way you respond to a president, whether you agree with that president or not. And I don't think it's the right way to represent the interests of your shareholders and your customers and your employees. I agree. All right, before we get to Chuck. Um, one more issue. Our friend of the pod, Tom Perez, has joined the race for DNC chair. What do you think, Dan? I look. I Tom Perez is a friend of mine. Um, we worked together for several years in the White House. He's one of my favorite people I've ever worked with. I think he would be a great uh, DNC chair or great whatever he wants to do next. Um, but I think he, Tom Perez, checks a lot of the boxes that Democrats are going to be looking for in terms of he's a good messenger. He's a good organizer. He's been sort of in political organizers his whole life. And he bridges the, I think very well, the Obama-Clinton establishment world and the the you know movement progressives. Like that's that's where he came out of. So this is gonna be a fascinating uh, race going forward. And we hope to get Tom on the pod soon, just like uh, Keith Ellison was on and hear, hear what his vision for the DNC is. Yeah, and one thing I'll say is, I really hope that people do not make this race between Tom Perez and Keith Ellison, both of whom I think are excellent candidates, like some proxy battle or like refighting Bernie versus Hillary or Bernie versus Obama or like 
it's just, I, I mean, I saw some of it last night on Twitter, and I was just like, look, there's a, I mean, being honest about our differences as a party is incredibly important, and we should have a debate about issues and have a debate about like what the future looks like and who we should go after and you know all that kind of stuff. It's important to have that fight, but like making the just because like you know Perez was in the White House and Keith Ellison was you know endorsed by Bernie, like making it this larger proxy battle is not really that helpful. The other, well, I'll say one last thing on this, which is last night in his, some of the crit, and last night in the, there was a forum that Keith Ellison and some of the other DNC candidates were at where it was raised as an implicit criticism of Tom Perez that Democrats did not do great, to say the least, down ballot under President Obama. Mm-hmm. And that is a fair criticism of the Obama political operation. And that would be a great argument if, like, you and I were running for DNC chair. But it, you really can't hold Tom Perez, who worked in the Office of Civil Rights at DOJ in the first term and Secretary of Labor in the second term, for what our strategy was for winning governors and races and state legislature races like that. That is not. There may be credit. There may there are fair critiques of Tom Perez, but that is not. Yeah. One of them. Just just critique both candidates or not or support them based on you know their vision and, and what yeah. they say. I think that's the that's the that's the best rule of thumb. Um, yeah. Okay, we will be right back with Meet the Press's Check Todd. The Ringer Podcast Network is now available on TuneIn. And while you can listen to every episode on the TuneIn Audio app for free, TuneIn is giving listeners 20% off its premium subscription for limited time. You can catch the home calls of your favorite sports team, at home or on the road. That's every play, every team, every game. You love sports, you'll love TuneIn Premium. Plus, with TuneIn Premium, not only will you get to hear your favorite sports teams live, you'll also get great commercial-free music from around the world and unlimited access to every audiobook in the library, live or on demand. So go to TuneIn.com forward slash The Ringer to get TuneIn Premium at 20% off. Download the TuneIn app and subscribe today. Back to the pod, we have uh, NBC's political director, host of Meet the Press, and host of the 1947 podcast, Chuck Todd. Chuck, welcome. Thank you, and and you know we're we're trying to. If why aren't you asking me what 1947 means? You're supposed is to. That was my first question. <laughs> is it the fir- is yeah. it the first year of Meet the Press? See, there you go, Dan Pfeiffer. Yeah, with, well, the, ding, ding. with the answer, absolutely. Yeah. And what that means is next year's our 70th anniversary. And we figured, you know, we'll go back to our roots, a little radio. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's so pretty we decided good. to do a little cross, uh, a cross pod here today. So we're going to we're going to test this out. Is that where we're, do we think we have officially created a word cross pod? I, I've been saying it just I like think it, I, I think it's an it existing up. word. I think so. Is it It's like? Yeah, I think yeah. it's like when the cast of Cagney Lacey was on Miami Vice or something like that. Wow, Dan, how old Wait are you? Wait a minute. <laughs> I, I watched a lot of Miami Vice. If Cagney and Lacey had ever shown up, I would have stopped watching yeah, Miami I don't, Vice. Yeah, I don't, I, don't I don't think that actually happened. I was just picking two shows old enough for Chuck. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. Really, you're not into Tivoli and Wales, or what is that one show that I don't that, that they promote a lot during uh, when I have to watch college basketball on TBS? I, I don't know. There was I, some Cagney and Lacey ripoff back in the TBS days. Anyway, I ha- never mind. Uh, Riz- Rizzoli and Isles? Is That's that what you it. mean? Rizzoli That's and it. Isles? There yeah. you go. Yeah. yeah. So, the modern day uh, Cagney and Lacey. So, what should we talk about, Chuck? You're the you're the you actually have a talk a real talk show that's uh, somewhat prominent <laughs> on the on the news. <laughs> so well, I'll start with I'll lead. start with you. Fine. Look, I mean, in all honesty, just to share, I want to I'll I want to talk to you guys about the future of the Democratic Party, and I'm hoping you you know we do the same 
you beat the you know whatever topic you want to beat us up on uh, in the press. <laughs> Seems like a fair split in this interview, right? Perfect. All right, let's do it. Fire away, Mister Host. Fake news. Yes. So I, I, I'll so I'll start with you, Mister Pfeiffer, since you were quoted in the illustrious New York Times, um, That's which the at least failing half, the, half the country believes. Yes. Um, which is the idea, the, the, the debate inside the Democratic Party, which is how hard to fight for the working class white voter. Um, and was 2016 uh, a dead cat bounce for the Republicans, <laughs> which seems to be what you're arguing, that basically it's an accidental election demographic. All, all the trends that everybody assumed before still exist. Are you wor- I, why aren't you worried that you're wrong about this? Well, I, I'm, trust me, ever since election day, I've been worried I'm wrong about everything. So I don't I don't I make no I make no pronouncements with great confidence. The point I was trying to make is this is sort of a false debate, which is you have to choose between the Obama coalition and holding down your margins in rural in rural areas where that primarily prominent primarily have white voters and that the Obama strategy in 2012 was to have a broadly appealing progressive economic message that brought record turnout among the emergent emerging majority of the Obama coalition and also did well enough to win in all places where Hillary Clinton got trounced by Trump. Now, that is going to deliver diminishing returns to us over time, as it will to Republicans, as, pop- as demographics and population shift. And Trump was a better candidate than Romney with that group. But you can't. My, my point is, you can't see the ground. You don't have to choose between being progressive and having a compelling message to the working class. It's the the, da- the danger is if we decide we want to appeal specifically to the white working class and not the working class writ large. Yeah, I mean, you can't choose really. I mean, I, I also think. An interesting point is that in 2012, a full third of Obama's coalition were non-college educated whites. Um, And then I think the most interesting insight from this election is one in five Trump voters approved of Obama's job performance. So I do think it's I don't think it's like a complete fluke that we shouldn't worry about. Like we should, of course, worry about this and we should build up the party and organize. But um, I think this is I think what we learned is whether you're going after uh, non-working, non-educated, non-educated college whites or non-college educated whites or the so-and-so so-called Obama coalition of African-Americans, Hispanics, young voters, college educated voters, et cetera, um, you still need sort of. A, an inspiring message to drive people to the polls and fear of the other is not enough to, right. uh, to motivate, well, that, motivate votes. Have you guys thought about, have, I'm curious, have you thought about um, how the white working class would be feeling today had they lost, had Trump lost? That, you know, the despair that, you know, that they would have felt, oh my God, uh, my way can't win an election ever again. What do you think that this, what would the impact have been in, in white working class rural America? I think it would probably be similar. We saw some of this in 2012, right? Um, so, yeah, I think you would, like, elections are cataclysmic events, you know, social and cultural events now. And, you know, if you go back and you read all the stories yeah. about how I would argue that's ever- a prop, by the way. That's a problem. But anyway, go ahead. That yeah, yeah. That, that no, come, no question. That's bad for the system. Yeah, yeah. Yes, if you think it's the apocalypse every time your party loses, then a lot has gone wrong. And you like, I went back and looked at some of the stories from 2012 and how 
you know, what the reaction was to Obama's win. Similar to in people living in a, I don't want to say fake news bubble, but a right wing news bubble who thought Romney was going to win based on, you know, poll unskewing the like. And then, oh, my God, Obama won and he won by a shitload. And then you take what happened to a lot of um, how Democrats feel is they were confident they were going to win and then losing. So I think you would see basically the mirror image of what you're seeing right now in, you know, urban areas you'd see in rural areas, which is people very concerned about the future of the country. I, I also think it's I mean, you have to divide the Trump coalition uh, on that question, because I think there's a, a small base of Trump supporters, maybe not a small base, like 30, 40 percent, um, who would have been outraged and, you know, possibly marching in the streets. And then I think there's a lot of voters who ended up uh, voting for Trump who didn't like either candidate and thought, eh, maybe this guy's a better chance to bring about change. Uh, and they are probably not super hopeful about a Trump presidency, but they feel like, eh, maybe it's maybe it's a shot that I can take here. And if she won, they here's probably why I threw it. Yeah. Yeah. Here's here's why I threw this out there at you, because I can't I've actually had quite a few conversations with some you know, when I was in Macomb and I just did West Virginia, where oh, you guys are finally listening. And if that's all I get out of the Trump presidency, that's not bad for me. <laughs> Meaning more attention from Democrats, more attention from the media. I mean, you can ask Latino voters in 2012 how they'll feel about that. You know how well that worked out for them. No, with no the, I, with the other I know. So, no. For yeah. every right for every voting group that feels as if they've been listened to. There's a, what you just said. I've I've talked to plenty of people in despair who think, oh, my God, where did my country go? Which was the exact same Thing that many of the Romney voters said right four years ago. I mean, my, I, again, I'm the, I'm wary of predictions as well. But my my bet is that if Trump loses in 2020, it will because it will be because those people said who just said that they weren't listened to will say to you, you know what? We gave him a couple years, and I thought he was going to be different, and he's not. And he's just part of the same. He's part of the same establishment. He's been captured by the same establishment. He hasn't done anything to change my life. So where's the new one now? So Chuck, question for you related to this: Do you feel like, you know, I don't actually speak for the entire media, but you know, either for like your show or NBC, mm-hmm. failed to, failed to speak to those voters and listen to the listen to those to that part of America of American society? Here's, uh, did we listen to them? Yes. Or, we, or cover them, give, give them a voice. Did we do a coverage. no? And I'll tell you, look, I, I've I've said this out loud. I've said it internally. You know, um, I was obsessed with Iowa for the longest time because I thought here is the best state to go to find an Obama Trump voter. Like we keep talking about, like to me, that was the most fascinating voter. Right? Is who are these Obama Trump voters? And they clearly were there in Macomb. They clearly are there in the first district of Iowa. Right? That's fascinating. Right? And I think if we had spent some time, and so that's where I feel like we let we, we in, in a weird way, we probably let ourselves down. Right? Just spending more time forcing internally reporting, like, boy, boy there are a lot. You look at these Obama Trump voters; they do exist. Something else is happening here. Right? Whatever it is, I, I think that. You know, we just think about it. Who wrote the Obama Trump voter story that you remember reading? Yeah, you there was remember like, reading one. There was Dan? one in the Washington Post that scared me. I remember. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> right. I mean, but like, and Iowa was staring us in the face. Like, we ended up finding out there were more places where there were Obama, but that was one that was sh- staring us in the face for the longest time. 
right? Here's the state that created Obama that was essentially, you know, that basically gave legitimacy that Obama could win. And now they're turning on Hillary. Um, yeah. That's interesting. And, and I so that's where I feel if you ask where. But this is where, you know, I've struggled in explaining our role because, you know, my problem is some of the and I've been referring to him as sort of the concierge media, which is the people that that a candidate can call up and just do their bidding for them. Their platform is louder and bigger than ever. And it drowns out what happens with the actual journalists that are the ones in the middle of trying to do this work. And that's also a bit frustrating. And I don't have a good answer do, for how we declutter this a little bit. Do you think one one issue is, I mean, I noticed when uh, right after the election, the big self-reflection in the media was, how did we miss the story? Which is really a self-reflection that's based on prediction. We predicted wrong. And I know that that's right. And I, I hope you're saying is that that's the wrong premise to start from. Yeah. Well, it's, I'm just I mean, look, we did this this podcast for, you know, the last six or seven months. And one thing that hit me after the election results were like we became too much like, you know, the pundits that we often decry because all, you know, every day, every podcast episode, it was like, what are the polls? What's going to happen? Who's going to win? What, how's this going to play? And I wonder if political journalism doesn't need to get back to hearing people's voices, doing real reporting, or if, you know, that's not as exciting as the prediction business. And so it's not a business model. Like, I don't know how that goes, but what are your thoughts on that? I can tell you this. I'll tell you. I've never had less enthusiasm for my next poll as I do for the next one we have coming out. And I don't say this. <laughs> I love my pollsters. But I'm like, why should I, you know. And our our national poll turns out not to be that off. We had it plus four at the end. It was plus two, right? You know? Yeah. So it's, oh, hey, well, we got that right. You know, yeah, it doesn't feel that way, right? But, um, but I also think, Jesus, everything was too much poll-driven. Everything was demographic-driven. I'll tell you one. So you're right. It's like, I mean, look at, you know, one, I'll tell you one thing that, that hit hit home to me. And I just, God, when the first person who pointed it out to me, I just felt like I just felt like a I felt like a jerk um, was hearing the voters say that when we would say college educated whites and non-college educated whites, we were implying the dumb people were for Trump and the smart people were for Clinton. And. We were being clinical about it and speaking of demographics, but you know what? I get how people heard it differently. You know, that there yeah. was this idea, oh, the educated class thinks one thing. And, and I do think that kind of coverage actually helped reinforce the, the, the sort of the Trump protest voter. Maybe it's the person who, think, who thought, who agreed, boy, Trump. And I had plenty of Trump voters you'd talk to that say, I know he's kind of a blowhard or I know... You know, but almost the more we piled on on that front, the more we turned it into a, you know, how does any right thinking American, you know, blah, blah, blah. I do think we did. We did reinforce some resentment. Yeah. And look at Democrats. It's as Democrats. I'm also like we we certainly don't feel like we're the party of 
elitists. <laughs> like we we have this policy agenda that we, at least we believe is targeted towards working class Americans, right. African Americans, Latinos, whites, whoever you whatever you know demographic you may come from. We still think that on a class right. level it targets a lot of working class Americans. But when the shorthand is all about demographics and prediction, then you start becoming more of a party of you know of you know the elitist party or whatever. Well, it's hard because if you're trying to bring the science to it, right? Like, there's a very good point that maybe the better way to look at look at voters to try to understand this is not based on their education level, but on their income level, because um, mm-hmm. that can speak to what you know what their economic case. Because we know from all the research we did over the many years in Obama world is people's personal economic situation determines how they feel about the economy, much more so than if you have a college degree, right? It's, it's less about your education level, more about your, you know, how you feel, how the economic pressures you're facing. But the second thing is, it would be, in, like you will go back and look at this and say, it would be incorrect to go back and say that the, you look at the results of selection and say this was about a working class revolt, because it wasn't, because the predictive value of the, what was the predictive data point on people supporting Trump or Hillary was race, not uh, their economic situation, because working class like if you think working class whites have a lot of ec- economic anxiety. So do working class Latinos and Asians and African-Americans. But, and they but voted by the way, it Hillary. wasn't just but it wasn't just race. I would argue it was geography. You know, we, we underestimated the geographic. I mean, look at Florida, Florida. Every county that didn't touch the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean or the Gulf of Mexico saw a record turnout for Trump, right? So yeah. ge- geography determined a lot more of this, which, of course, re- reinforced by race and all that. Yeah. It, you know, part of it is that there are these, you know, sort of white, white, white enclave counties, right, that, that don't have a lot of diversity or have new diversity, right, in, in new immigrants that aren't yet voters, aren't really sort of fully integrated into the, the local society, and people just see it, oh, my God, type of thing. I mean, I think we underestimated geography here a little bit, too. Yeah, I think that well, we're so centralized. You know, communities are becoming so much more homogenous, homogenous racially and demographically, that, or racially and economically, as the country is, you know, more people on the higher income scale move to urban areas, people gentrified out of urban areas, Um so, there, I mean, Florida is an interesting one because, I mean, this is the state in which you were a particular expert in, but this sure. is sort of how project how the momentum of predictions got out of line. Like, like we talked on this podcast for a long time. Like, you look at you look at your home state and you say, how is it? It's so likely Hillary was going to lose. If you just look at it based on 2012, you say it's so likely Hillary is going to lose. Right. Obama right. won by 75,000 votes or i think and right. you know you guys even call it for like almost a week and so you you assume some drop off of voters just because it's in part because it's not obama and in part because it's a third presidential election row and you right. know trump is going to do better the 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 makeup of the of white voters in in florida suggests that trump would do better than romney so it seemed likely but we all got sort of you know, this is where the state polling was problematic is then all the state polls told you something different. But Dan, it was more than that. I mean, look, I go to uh, if on election night, she was killing him in Hillsborough County and nobody has ever won the state of Florida without carrying Hillsborough. Right. Miami Dade had a record. You know, the problem was and I remember the moment on air when I sort of flipped from, oh, 
I was pretty confident she was going to be president when I was just watching Hillsborough. Literally, I was watching Hillsborough and Miami-Dade, and I saw the vote total, and I saw how much of Broward was left, and you're like, oh, wow. There's plenty of Broward. She's going to win. It's going to be close, but she's going to win by whatever amount of vote. And then all of a sudden, the Broward number kept shrinking, right? Vote kept coming in, and the number didn't. And, and he held his whatever it was, 75,000 vote lead, 90,000 vote lead, then it kept growing. And you were like, oh, sh- oh, shoot. Let me go to Hernando County. Let me go to Pasco County. And then you went, oh, my God, more people have voted in that county than have voted in the last you know, ever. you know. Yeah. And he's winning it by double what Romney won it. So – you know, that was a case where if you only had if, – if I'd given you partial information – I mean, th- I'll give you another one. If I told you, Dan, that Hillary Clinton was going to carry Cobb County and that was the only piece of information I gave you on election night. Cobb County, Georgia, Newt Gingrich's home <laughs> county, right? So, right. And I told you Hillary Clinton was going to carry it. I, I did this with Brad Todd, the Republican strategist. I did this experiment. If I told you that he said, well, I would have assumed 350 electoral votes for Hillary. <laughs> Right, just on that one well, piece same of information. Thing. You, I mean, that was another thing. But but right. the, if you, you know, told trend me lines were different, for, if you if you told me you know six months ago, Hillary Clinton will definitely win Virginia and Colorado. I would have said there was a hundred and fifty percent certainty she would be president. <laughs> right, like, like it's just how about like, that? I know. I mean, it's just a totally. By the way, she won Virginia by seven. I know. Yeah. She didn't I mean, just it's like insane. it's not like a narrow. It's the biggest victory a Democrat's had in Virginia. Whatever. I'm. Sh- I mean, for, probably yeah, since sure. LBJ or something like that. Right. Yeah, it's, you know, like, not question, since the old uh, Democratic South. You the know? question yeah. is, where you know, we just decried talking about it all demographically, and then we did that. <laughs> <laughs> we just did. It. But I like, know. how much? No, but how much of this is based on the very unique personalities and candidacies of both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and how much is broader trends? You know, like I, then, I still think that campaigns and the candidates really do matter you know and i think we learned by the from way this if you guys that's so. why you have you have to answer this question as a party right like this determines the direction of this party right joe manchin and tom vilsack are arguing one thing but you know what tom it's like, perez i, I you was, know arguing another i was on the Kerry campaign we lost and uh in 04 everyone was like you know we got to appeal to uh working class whites this is it's all about john edwards he's from the south look at the resume if you had told someone the day after the 2004 election that the answer to the democratic party's problems was barack hussein obama from the south side of chicago (laughs) (laughs) you would have told you you were fucking crazy yeah i mean mean, you you remember the famous book the way to win that has neither neither the words barack hussein well may have hussein in there but barack or obama in there one single time right no it was all hillary the, the, the way to win one of the one of one of the biggest. I, well, never mind. I, I, yeah, yeah, I almost I, said I something. You. I just. <laughs> I, I yes. understand. I understand. Yes. yes. One, one, one of the, the uh, one one book you don't need on your shelf. <laughs> well, let me ask you a uh, question, Chuck, for the press. Like there, like okay. there's been a lot of debate about the role of Russian hacking, right? And mm-hmm. part of what and what is a dumb debate is, is Russian hacking the reason why Hillary Clinton won or lost? That's an unanswerable debate. It's like trying to determine the, uh, you know, the Akamov football game based on, you know, a one point basketball game based on one play other, you know, in the middle of the game. Like, you just don't know. Right. It could be a thousand things that led to right. that. But do you think there are lessons to be learned for the press in how if you how Russian intelligence use the U.S. Mm-hmm. media to, as a tool here? Here's the thing. I, I, I don't I have I had this debate. We've had this debate about WikiLeaks for five months. OK, it wasn't just a postal election debate. We've had it internally. Um, and 
it has been uh, you know i'll be honest we we did i'd like to i'd i'd like to think we did less wikileaks than anybody i'm not going to say we never did it i i i remember i you know, but the only question I ever asked John Podesta about it, the first time I asked him about it on a debate night, I said, I don't want to get into the context, but I wanted him to talk about it. And he, he didn't want to talk about it. But I just think it's nobody knows. That's a weird feeling to essentially be uh, digitally stripped naked for the world to see. Right. It's yeah. it's it's an un, I, I, it's something that I think I, I hope it does. You know, nobody want, wishes this upon anybody. And so to me, I wanted to know what is that like? You know, what is your person? You know, you know, John Podesta, the guy doesn't like to talk about himself. And so he just punted. But um, and I thought Marco Rubio's stance was a fascinating one that didn't get enough attention. Yeah. If you recall. Right. I thought about that. Rubio said, you know what? I'm not going to I'm not going to do it. You know, now he's a he he, you know, he's somebody that that is pretty passionate in his anti-Putin feelings. Right. And so. And he's somebody that believed the intelligence, uh, Billy's intelligence reports. But um, I, look, I, I it, it's one of those things. We don't have the power to say something's not out there. So if you have something that's impacting the campaign and you know it's having a, how do you avoid covering it? Right. So uh, it, it, there's there's not a there's not a right answer here, I think. The more context you can give to to the whole thing, obviously, the better. But I don't, you know, look, Donald Trump was touting WikiLeaks at his rallies, right? So he was making it, inserting it into the to the debate as well. And it's not like you can censor him, right? right. So I, I look, I don't, I, 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 you know, this is just a gigantic challenge, and I have to say, it's it's only made me more paranoid about everything, right? About you know more secure phones. I don't email much beyond informational emails, you know, or you don't email anything that you don't expect to be public. I try to do even now. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I have one source that I'm dealing with on the Russia stuff that, you know, we don't, we don't talk on the phone anymore. It's all in person now. That person. It's very very the American. This person's a, no, and this person's, and part of it is this person's been a target, you know? And so the point is, is that, um, I look, I, I mean, there. I don't. I don't think the answer is you can completely ignore it. And so, if that's not the answer, then how much do you do? And I think that's an open to interpretation. Well, let me ask this: Do you, do you think that the overall coverage of the email issue, which is the server, WikiLeaks, and Comey, that were all sort of mashed together at times, do you think that that mm-hmm. was proportional to the importance of those issues? Uh, in the race, uh, I don't think it was proportional in compared to how Trump's. You know, if you were to say Trump, look, fair or not, whatever on, on Hillary Clinton, and I would say, you know, her the number one issue for her with many voters was her trustworthiness. So, and and it's been an issue for her in her career, and you can and I and a Clinton partisan. I think can make a very rational argument to say this has been made up and trumped up about her since the very beginning. And look, I've got this whole theory on her that goes back to 1980 and, and how sort of it's always been an antagonistic relationship with her when it comes to politics and the media because she was treated unfairly, I think, by the Arkansas press back in 1980. But let me set that aside. Mm-hmm. I think because that so that what I think 
I think the fairest criticism of us was we covered her like she was going to be president of the United States. And we covered him like he was um, a celebrity involved in scandal. So they, yeah. he, in some ways, got more coverage. It was more salacious than the type of coverage she got. Her coverage was more substantive in the type of hits. You know what I mean? So, and, and frankly, voters didn't care about his personal problems. You know, we didn't cover his conflict of interest stuff enough because, frankly, I think some media organizations decided it's not worth the effort. He's not going to win. What's it matter? Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, look, look from, my, from a campaign perspective, my lesson from the coverage would be uh, next time you're running against someone, find uh, find an issue or a scandal that reinforces a character trait that people already don't like about that person that also reinforces a positive character trait for your candidate and just harp on that to the detriment of almost every single other target that they give you because the media will latch on to that and and keep going with it right up until the end (laughs) and it's not even the media it's it's having a consistent message trump made it very hard to have a consistent message because he he like threw new things out every day but we ran one campaign against romney from day one Trump ran one campaign mm-hmm. against Hillary. Even if you just ask people to spit something back they heard in the campaign, they would probably say the words crooked Hillary. The two things. They'd say two things. Yeah. Crooked Hillary and make America great again. So Trump, whatever you think, had the most consistent, penetrating contrast message and the most yeah. concise, well-understood positive message. And that candidate tends to win uh, in most cases. All right, let me let me uh, steal 1947's turn here. Sure. Uh, and let me ask you guys this. Do you feel, um, what do you think of the a small but growing chorus of Democrats that are frustrated that President Obama did not shout from the rooftops the Russia hack and, and the CIA and, and what happened uh, more forcefully before the election? So uh, when I saw this break... Um, I my first reaction was like, what, 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 what happened? Why didn't we say anything? <laughs> and then as I started you, reading, you were the, you were one of those Democrats. No, is what no. You're saying. When I started reading it, and I started, I always do this to myself. I'm like, okay, let's play it out, right? So McConnell tells him, we're not doing a bipartisan statement on this. We're not going to stand with you. And if you go talk about this, then um, I'm going to accuse you of playing partisan politics, right? So then Obama says, screw McConnell. It's too important. I'm going to go out and say something anyway. So now, instead of letting the intelligence agencies talk about why they believed this was uh, Russian interference, which they did on October 8th, and on the end of July, Obama himself also said, um, by the way, Putin wants Trump to win the election and there's hacking. So it's pretty closely, he pretty closely connected it as far back as the end of July. But if he had gone out there in October, which is when they came to that conclusion, and said, you know, this is... This is the Russians are interfering with our elections and they are trying to help Donald Trump and 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 that's bad and blah blah blah. What happens then? So Trump attacks Obama, the right wing media attacks Obama, they dismiss it. Uh, McConnell attacks Obama as promised. And then the question is, does that impact the vote at all or does it just I mean, no, that's not to say I don't think basically I don't think it would have helped the situation. I don't know that it necessarily would have hurt the situation. So maybe he could have said something and, you know, I I don't think it would have made things any worse. Um, But I don't know that it would have made things any better. I mean, I've been 
like put all of our obvious biases, you know, on the table here. But like I've been in these situations where you were trying not related to the campaign, but where you have a question mm-hmm. of classified information that you want to declassify and put out. And it is very hard to do it. In, yeah. You have two situations. One, you're going to be accused of playing politics. And so that would be that would be problematic. I don't think it would just be the right wing media. I think the media itself would savage. And your hands are limited because you can't put the supporting evidence out. Right. You can make a declaration, but you right. can't because of because it's all classified in sources and methods. You can't go to the world and do a bill of particulars and say, here's all the stuff. We dealt with this with snow with the NSA stuff all the time. We would like a story would be written. It would be somewhat right, but not exactly right. And we would be, we could go out and tell the press it was wrong, but we couldn't show how because you your hands are tied. Second problem Obama had here was the FBI had already told the New York Times that they didn't think that Trump was that Russia was trying to help Trump. And the New York Times had put it on the front page above the fold. And so Obama was going to go out and say this. And then his own some parts of his own government who disagreed with the assessment would have publicly said that. And it would have right. been I think it would have been bad for I don't know what impact it would have had the election. I agree with John. I don't think it would help. Maybe it wouldn't have hurt either, because I mean, who the hell knows what was going to matter in this election? All right. I think but let me ask you about now for government. Should he have been the one to have shouted the CIA conclusion to the rooftops post-election rather well, I think than he's, basically I think now, having it come out in the post? Should he be more forceful and should he be – it's clear Trump's not going to punish these guys right now. He may have to get there because Congress may force his hand. But should he be doing something now before the Electoral College, for instance? I mean, I – you know – you. you I'm sure you've heard from quite a few Clinton campaign staffers that wish he would do that. Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's there's two things there. One is he's got to wait. I think he, if the CIA, if, the, if there wasn't that Washington Post story, then he would have waited for the investigation to be completed to pull all the threads of the investigation together so he could talk about it before he leaves office. I think that was always the plan, and then I think probably that the leak jumped the plan. Um, I mean, the, the tough part is it's just because if, if this was if, if we found out that the Russians hacked our voting machines, right, and this was out there, then that would be a huge deal. That yes, like maybe we need to talk to the electors, and, and this this could be big here, you know. Right. But it is very hard, and it was very hard during the campaign. It is hard to undo the damage done by propaganda, an attack based on propaganda, right? Because it right. what this was was like releasing emails that were real <laughs> and people made judgments from what they read about the emails and from how the media portrayed the emails and how the Trump campaign portrayed the emails and Barack Obama talking about that a partisan a democrat someone who supported yeah. and campaigning for Hillary Clinton isn't changing your mind that you didn't like that Hillary Clinton said that to Goldman Sachs and that's the real tough that's the tough that's the tough situation he's in yeah i believe i am like, I don't think the Electoral College should be the deciding factor here. Like, to John's point, if we knew there was a question about the accuracy of the actual results themselves, like some evidence that they hacked in to the, right. you know, the whatever. Macomb County Cuyahoga, voting Macomb machine. County, right. Th- thank you for picking <laughs> sure. a random county. For yeah. And, and move votes around. Then, yes, we, we, you, we, I don't think the Electoral College should vote till you, till you get to the bottom of that. Like, this idea that I find it dangerous, dangerous to think that the that what we should do is convince electors not to respect the will of the voters in their states. Like that's a terrible precedent to set and a a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I think what I am concerned about related to this is the long is the medium and long-term implications of the fact that Putin was able to get 
the only Putin, pro-Putin politician in all of America. There were none. The Republican Party beat the living shit out of Obama in 2014 because they thought he was not being aggressive militarily enough with Putin. Right. And now the leader right. of the Republican Party is someone who is has close ties to Putin, praises Putin, has a national security advisor who has ties to Putin, has nominated a secretary of state who is a friend of Putin, had a campaign manager who was a lobbyist for allies to Putin <laughs> and changed the Republican Party platform in order to make it less anti-Russia. So just imagine the party of Reagan having a more pro-Russia platform. All of that is going to mean a lot in the world order going forward. And we have to know, we have to get to the bottom of this to understand the foreign policy implications going forward. I don't think it is about how the, uh, you know, how, whether it meant Hillary Clinton won or lost election, because I personally believe that, and I think the polling somewhat suggests this, or the move in the polling, that yeah. Comey was 10x more influential than John Podesta's emails. Yep. You know, but in a close race, all things matter. So maybe she would have won with Comey. You know, right? Like mattered. maybe if she hadn't had pneumonia, and Comey mattered. had happened, this hadn't happened, she might have won. It's just like who, you know, who knows for sure? So but my, there's, my, there's a bigger picture I, here. But I, I t- to go to that front about like you know, oh, you know, it's like the whole what is it? Uh, victory has a thousand fathers. You know, what orphan is it, uh, Defeat, defeats you know, an orphan. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. Defeat, yeah. Defeats an orphan. But my EP has this other thing. He's a big Buffalo Bills fan. Um, and yes, there's always has to be somebody at Meet the Press that's a big Buffalo Bills fan. But he always <laughs> talks about the infamous missed field goal in the Super Bowl and how the entire history of like whether the run and shoot offense was an effective offense, whether they were tough enough on anything. He's like literally, if that if a gust of wind blows that field goal good, the entire legacy of the Buffalo Bills is rewritten just based right. on one, you know, based on three feet or three yards, you know, of a, of a field goal that was wide right. You know, and, it, and it's like, ultimately, that's how you describe this election, right? Which is just there's, there's a thousand things that impacted it at the end of the day yeah. when it's yeah, that close. Right. Yeah, like 40,000 votes change and uh, the Clinton campaign's a bunch of geniuses and the Trump campaign's the They're idiots, geniuses. The idiots ah, that identity politics it. works. Yeah, right. Right. Identity <laughs> right. politics works. It's the future yes. of the Democratic Party. <laughs> Yeah, so we we actually don't call uh, it identity politics for the for the record. We just call it like progressive motivate, you know, progressive politics. Yes, sorry, yes, sir. That's okay. Dan's being okay. politically right. correct here on the podcast. No, it's not even politically correct. <laughs> uh, it's just I feel like the Obama recipe is being boiled down. I by hate him. the term identity politics. Yeah. I hate it. No, well, it's yeah. Well, and then we also yeah, call it not being afraid of appealing to non-white people, which was the mo and a recipe that works well for us. Right. <laughs> That's right. Well, it's hard to have that strategy when the candidate is not white, so <laughs> it's hard to like trick people. And, yeah, yeah, you can't well, such a moment. <laughs> The entire ticket yeah. uh, on yeah. that front, but that's another debate uh, down the yeah. road. Well, thank you for uh, thank you for doing this. Well, John Favreau and uh, and Dan Favreau, thanks for being on 1947. Okay, thanks to Chuck Todd for joining us today uh, on the 1947 pod, and uh, we will uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. 